we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. We want them talking trash to Goliath. We want them building a boat and collecting animals. Everybody thinks they're crazy, and they are. I'm your huckleberry. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Behold, a pale horse. The man who sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. Can you read, my son? Well, that depends. Can you go fight in the shade? Repent or perish. You know your places. God be with you all. All for all and one for one, then, I guess. Stone Mountain Media. Hail to the King. Amen. I mean, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, verses uh, 1 through 10 tonight. Yes, sir. Uh, Revelation 13, starting at verse 1. God's word says this. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat in great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. It's Revelation 13, first half. We're going to get two new characters in in all of Revelation 13. We're going to have a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. Lord willing, we'll look at the beast from the land next week. But this week we have... Uh, for the first time in Revelation, this beast from the sea. Uh, so John's standing upon the, the sand, looking out of the sea, which I always hope to see, like a whale breach or something like that, uh, whenever I'm standing at the ocean. And he sees a beast breach, but this beast has seven heads, uh, ten horns upon those heads, and crowns upon the horns. So this is the beast that John beholds. And if you remember, we had a, a week off, but if you remember back to what Dave taught in Revelation 12 and for... Anyone who hasn't been with us, you're jumping right into knee-deep into Revelation. So we have, uh, we have blogs on stonemountainmedia.com up to where we're at. 
so you can catch up any questions you have. We can talk about it tonight after the teaching as well, but uh, there'll be a lot probably questions about. But for those of you who are here, Revelation 12 should, uh, uh, thinking of this passage and this description of the beast from the sea, should remind you of a description of uh, the dragon that we had in Revelation 12. The dragon had these seven heads and these ten horns. Uh, now the dragon, when we looked at uh, Revelation 12, uh, was basically a uh, consummation of all the kingdoms talked about in Daniel 7. Right? So Daniel 7 talks about four kingdoms. It talks about Babylon. It talks about Medo-Persia. It talks about Greece. And then it talks about Rome. Rome was a four-headed beast in, uh, in the book of Daniel. And then uh, the other three beasts were all one-headed beasts. That totals to seven. And so the dragon, uh, which is, we learned last week, is Satan, the devil, uh, is represented by these political powers that he had put in place. Right? As we'll see in our text, uh, any evil ruler, any evil empire, uh, any power they have has been ceded to them by the devil. And so he is uh, portrayed as the dragon, and the dragon is portrayed as uh, the fruition of, the culmination of all of these kingdoms uh, which have set themselves up against Christ and against his people. And the images we'll see in, uh, in this portion of Revelation in a few different spots, and we'll see it next week as well when looking at the beast of the land. We have basically these uh, wicked reversals of what God calls good in his order, right? So uh, Jesus was made in the image of, right, exact imprint of the nature of the Father. So when we look at Jesus, we see the Father. We see the only begotten, the one made in his image, right? But we have this, this week we have this with the dragon and the beast. So the devil kind of wickedly twists this idea of, you know, the one who's to be worshipped, who's to uh, be worshipped on the earth in place of the dragon is this beast, just as Jesus is worshipped to the Father, right? We come to the Father through the Son. Well, here we, the worship to the dragon comes through the beast. Just as Jesus is in the image of the Father. The devil twists and perverts the truth of God anywhere he's able. And just, in, just as a, a reference to, to Revelation 12, in verse 3 it says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven. So this was John in verse, in, uh, verse 3 of chapter 12. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So we see a mirror image uh, from Revelation 12 with the dragon to Revelation 13 with the beast of the sea. The beast of the sea is symbol- a symbolic form of uh, the dragon's evil empire, as I mentioned, at war against the church of God. We talked a couple weeks ago about how the sea kind of represents the Gentile nations as a whole. And, uh, and here we have this beast rising up out of the sea. So from the Gentile nations opposed to Christ, uh, the one over all of them, the one whom they all worship, uh, this dragon uh, ascends out of the sea. And as the description is laid out here, we're going to see that this beast from the sea is representative specifically of the Roman Empire. So uh, we'll, we'll cross-reference to uh, Revelation 17 momentarily to see uh, a little bit more of that description. Uh, in Revelation 17, we have uh, Rome described as the city of... Rome is known as the city of seven hills. So it'd be like uh, someone saying like the city of brotherly love. We instantly think of Philadelphia. We know what that means. That has a, a connotation in our minds. The same was true for anybody reading or hearing Revelation in that time. If they heard of uh, the city of seven mountains or seven hills, uh, they're instantly going to be knowing, knowing that Rome's being talked about. And interestingly enough, in this period, Rome had seven kings who reigned throughout this, this season, that, uh, the season of basically emperor worship. There was a, a seven emperor string where emperor worship was huge in Rome. And 
most specifically with Nero himself. Uh, but we don't want to just assert these kind of things. We don't want to just assert, well, oh, there's City of Seven Hills, Seven Crowns, there were seven emperors. That sounds like it fits. Uh, if we can, biblically, we always want to we want to get everything we have like strictly from the Bible. We don't want to even when something fits, right? That's and that's what premillennialists do with a lot of things is they look at something in the culture and then fit it to the scripture. But that's not a helpful way to to interpret scripture to understand what's being said. So I'm going to read from Revelation 17. If you want to flip there, it's Revelation 17 verses 9 through 12. I'm not going to talk about everything in verses 9 through 12, but just for context of uh, what's being talked about, and this is going to help give us a description of, of who the beast is. So I don't want to just assert that the beast is Rome. Let's see in the text where the, the beast is Rome. And the angel said unto me, so this is verse 9 of Revelation 17, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. So it's the same beast we have in our text, right? Seven heads, ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Which, side note, that's when your name was written in the book of life. At the foundation of the world. When they behold, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, that's, or, the, or seven hills. That's where we get that city of seven hills. So instantly right there, once, once they hear seven mountains, they know we're talking about Rome, on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Sorry for interrupting. Uh, you kind of put off guard because you said nine, and you started at seven, or somewhere up top. So we, we, we basically weren't following you at all. I don't know if you have the right verses. Thank you. Because you said nine, right? We're starting at nine? That's what I said, yeah. Because nine starts at... Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just, I'm just above that. I started oh, okay. at seven. Sorry about that. I don't you're good. To you. No, 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 you're good. Um, I'll just pick up at verse nine then. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. So seven, seven mountains, again, just since if it, if it was, that was confusing, I apologize. Uh, seven mountains, city of seven hills. That's where we get this idea of the... The seven kings, as we continue in verse 10, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. There's one king, there's one uh, emperor who comes right after Nero. Uh, we'll see later on that Nero, uh, he dies, uh, history tells us, by suicide, falls on his own sword, and then another king reigns after him in this, this series of emperor worship before the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, but only reigns for a short time. So this is the first hint we have, and it's not even, our text is going to get even more explicit to tell us that Nero is the emperor who is uh, being talked about most explicitly. But here we have him. Historically, he is the sixth in this line. He's the one who is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he will continue a short, he must continue a short space. Verse 11, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. So they're not emperor kings. They have, they have rule, but they're not the emperors. But receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And so these, these, uh, these ten horns represent uh, not emperors, but uh, governors over the ten provinces of Rome. So Rome had uh, seven emperors during this time. Those are our seven heads. And then the ten horns represent the governors of the ten provinces uh, during this time. 
The seven heads each had the name of blasphemy upon them, as what we read in verse 2 of our text, or the end of verse 1. Read it again here. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So the seven heads each have the name of blasphemy upon them. And this is again uh, hearkening back to that idea of this wicked reversal, right? So you have uh, the picture of the father and the son mirrored wickedly by the dragon and the beast. And now you have this idea of blasphemy written upon the heads of all of these kings, right? The heads are the kings. So each of these kings has the name of blasphemy written upon their foreheads, which in Exodus 28, 36 through 38, we have uh, God's command to Aaron and to the priests who follow after him to have holiness to the Lord upon their foreheads. The Aaronic priesthood was to be set apart uh, to serve the living God with holiness to the Lord upon their foreheads. And here we see another, as I said, wicked reversal of blasphemy upon their heads. And what this, this name represents is, uh, you know, what, what's, what is more blasphemous than taking a divine name upon yourself or demanding worship uh, from your subjects to yourself as if you were divine? And that's exactly what was happening with emperor worship during this time. Now, between these seven kings, it looked different. It wasn't all to the same degree. Some of them, still in wickedness, accepted worship, right? Worship was offered up to them. You think of an angel. What does an angel do when worship is offered to him? He rejects it. So there's a clear job we have to do if, ever, if worship is ever given to us in anything. We reject it. Glory goes to God. Uh, but they were, they were minimally accepting it, some you know, expecting it, and then some demanding it. Nero being in the category of demanding it. Uh, Nero, and we'll talk more about this momentarily, but Nero at one point in his uh, reign as, as emperor erected a 120-foot statue and demanded worship before a massive idol. Uh, of himself, and that was really just the beginning of his wickedness. But that is what it means to take to have blasphemy upon their foreheads. These these men were taking upon themselves, um, or demanding to themselves worship, and even at wanting to be referred to as divine. Um, any Roman word for divinity, they were taking to themselves, ascribing to themselves. Uh, and as we'll see at the end of chapter 13, we're told that this beast is more specifically Nero Caesar. So we're not going to go into it this week, uh, 666, the number of the beast. But we'll go into it next week. Uh, David Chilton has some crazy diagrams. Maybe I'll draw one of them. Um, but Nero is who's being specifically talked about as the beast himself, which is an interesting dynamic, right? So you have this beast, which we know represents all these kings and all these governors of a province. But there's one head who is right now. So five of the heads were, one head is, and one head will be. So there's one head kind of leading this beast in this time, and it's the emperor of that time. And so Nero functions as the federal head of Rome in this time. So although the, the beast is the Roman Empire as a whole, the beast is also Nero, is that, is, if that makes sense. So as the federal head, he can represent the whole. And so the beast referred to by John is sometimes Nero and sometimes Rome as a whole. And we, have to, we just have to discern that based on the context. Uh, but Nero as the federal head is, is the beast. The mark of the beast is Nero, as we'll talk about next week. And you know, you'll notice from our description in verse 2, we have 
interesting things that we don't have attributed to Rome in Daniel 7. If you want to go back and read Daniel 7 sometime, I encourage you to do so. Uh, I won't for the sake of time go there now, but the, the leopard, like unto a leopard, feet as the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion, none of that is given to Rome uh, in Daniel 7. It's actually given to those other kingdoms. It's given to Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And so what we have here is actually this, this culmination, right? These, those, those nations no longer are. So Rome is, is in place of those. Rome has conquered many of these nations, these empires. And so Rome represents kind of a superpower and the superpower through which the dragon has uh, concentrated all of his power to make his most concentrated effort against the church, right? We talked about that last week with the church basically just being birthed. Uh, we have this image of a woman running to the, to the forest, right? So the dragon saw this as his opportunity to squash out the church, right? He failed with Jesus. You know, he tempted Jesus, failed there. Jesus died, uh, rose again from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so, you know, the devil goes to do exactly what everyone who has, has hated Christians ever since then and sought to persecute them is, you know, you can't persecute Jesus. He's in the heavens. Good luck. But you can persecute his church. Church is right in front of you. So the devil tried to take this opportunity. And so we see even a quote from Daniel uh, is that this beast, this Roman beast, was much worse than the other beasts. So we have this description here, taking pieces from the other kingdoms as kind of this culmination of this is who Rome is. Rome is, Rome is not just the next step, uh, just the same as Babylon, the same as Medo-Persia, the same as Greece. No, Rome is, is a culmination of all the wickedness that these nations had. Tenfold. Tenfold in Rome. The devil seeking to make his most valiant attack on the church of Christ. The authority and power that Rome has, we read, was given by the dragon. The, the beast was given his great seat, given authority, and given uh, his power. So given his power and his seat in great authority at the end of verse 2. And so this is, you know, we, a, lot, a lot of times historically it's talked about as a political battle, right? This political battle with Rome. But mainly this battle, though it was fought politically by Rome, was a spiritual battle, right? Any wicked nation has their power from the dragon from the devil and therefore is a pawn in his war, in his campaign. But unfortunately for the dragon, just as we talked about two weeks ago, the dragon is a pawn in the hand of Almighty God. So any move that the dragon thinks he's making that's, that's thwarting the, the plans of God are only furthering them every single time. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 13. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So the beast had a head that was wounded to death, but healed. Uh, there's a... I won't go into that. I'll talk about it after if we have time. Uh... This should instantly make you think of uh, Genesis 3, right? When you talk about the beast who's serving the dragon, you know, this dragon, this beast having a head wound, you should instantly be thinking, oh, serpent crusher. The serpent's going to have his head crushed. It's going to bruise the Messiah's heel. He's going to have victory over him. Uh, and that's what this head wound represents. This head wound was delivered by Jesus in his sin-atoning death and in his life-giving resurrection. That's what Jesus did. That's when he crushed the serpent in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus conquered death and sin for us and for all his covenant people. And Satan would fight 
a losing battle more and more. That's what it meant that this death blow had been delivered. Uh, Satan's just going to fight a losing campaign for the rest of his days, all the way till the second coming, when he's going to be cast into the outer darkness, into the lake of fire. Though this was true, that happened, and that's what this wound is. Though that's true, and though the, the gospel really spread like wildfire right out the gates, and most of the, most of the persecution that was being uh, seen right away was for actually at the hands of the Jews, not at the hands of the Romans. It was led by men like Saul prior to his conversion becoming Paul and writing most of our New Testament. Um, most of the, the persecution wasn't coming from Rome. It was coming at the hands of the Jews. That started to change when Nero came into power. Uh, and, and so it was, it was met, the church of Christ, the gospel of Christ was met with immense persecution at the hands of Nero. So much so that, you know, John writes this wound seeming, is seemingly healed, right? Uh, although a death blow has been dealt, there's a lot of persecution happening here. Nero represents the blasphemies committed by the wicked nation of Rome more than any emperor around him and probably close to of all, of all time. Uh, as I said earlier, he, he had erected this 120-foot statue demanding worship before it. Uh, he used Christians regularly as tiki torches, literally, putting them on a stake, lighting them on fire for him to have orgies with them as, as tiki torches. So debaucherous parties with Christians burning at the stake. Uh, he regularly would dress up as an animal and rape male and female prisoners. He kicked his wife to death while she was pregnant. Literally just kicked her to death. Like, find a more wicked man. Absolutely gnarly. And he was a representation. When that's your leader, right? When that's your leader, when that's your federal head, your nation's not going to be far behind. You know, if you, a nation, especially if you're demanding worship and a, a nation is giving you that worship as one who's divine, uh, that nation is going to be following your train, right? That's what, I mean, that's what happens when we worship Jesus. You, you become what you behold. That's always going to be true. We're always going to become what we behold. If we want to behold wickedness, we will become wicked. And so uh, he was a representation of this nation. And the Christian church was experiencing, due to this, uh, immense persecution. And whenever persecution comes, a few things are going to happen, right? There's going to be a refining for Christ's people. But there's also always going to, it's always going to be met with apostasy. Always. There's always going to be people falling away whenever things get hard. That is the, you know, the, the shallow-rooted Christian. When things get hard, or the cares of the world, right? The, the Christian in, in thorns. Um, so that's always going to accompany persecution, and that's what the early church experienced with this immense persecution through Nero's, Nero's era. All the world wondered after the beast, our text says, and worshipped the dragon. And the worshippers of the dragon also worshipped the beast, right? It's like, it's like the father-son thing. If you're worshiping the beast, you're worshiping the dragon. If you're worshiping the dragon, you're going to worship the beast. There's no separating that. And this certainly applies to the Roman citizens of that day who were not Christians. They're obviously worshiping the beast. Uh, but it also applies very much to the Jews, and I think that's who John is addressing more so here. Uh, that's, been, that's something that's kind of been established throughout Revelation, is this idea that you know, the Jew, Jesus calls the Jews in Revelation 2 and 3 when we're looking at the letters to the churches— he calls the Jewish worshipers who are persecuting the church, he calls their synagogues the synagogue of Satan. That's where they worship. The Jews worship in the synagogue of Satan. Mosques, right, where Muslims worship, synagogue of Satan, mosque of Satan. Um, any, any worship that's not to the triune God through his son Jesus Christ is, is a worship to Satan. And think about what these Jews, right, these Jews who are about to have their nation destroyed, think about what they said. Uh, think about their relationship to Jesus, right? Pilate comes to them. And says, would you, do you want me to crucify your king? 
in John 19? Let's see. We have one king. Caesar, baby. Caesar all the way. Right? That's what they say. We have no king but Caesar. So they were 100% worshiping the beast. That was their proclamation. Their last chance to not have our Messiah crucified. The one who created them crucified. Good job, Judy. They killed him. They declared we have no king but Caesar. Let's look at verses 5 through 10 now and then we'll work our way through these. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle in them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kill with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. So this beast, namely Nero, was given by the dragon a mouth speaking blasphemies and blaspheming uh, three things, right? He's blaspheming the name of God. He's blaspheming his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. And he's doing this for 42 months. Those who dwell in heaven is us. We have our citizenship in heaven. We're united to, uh, united fully to the ascended Lord. And so we are those who dwell in heaven, especially on the Lord's day. Especially on the Lord's day. We ascend into his courts and we are those who dwell in heaven. This same amount of time, this 42 months, we've already seen in Revelation 11 and in Revelation 12. Uh, it's the same amount of time we've seen. And it's, uh, it's three and a half years. And that's, that's the broken seven, right? So if you think of uh, Revelation, you guys may not be familiar with all the numbers in Revelation. But early on in Revelation, you have this, uh, a lot of sevens, right? You have this, the seven spirits of God, which are before the throne. But we, know, we know God's triune, right? So we start with that. We always start with theology proper and our understanding of anything in the Bible. God's triune, so there's not seven spirits like, okay, now God's nine. No, God's three. So what is this seven talking about? Well, seven is a number throughout the Bible representing perfection, right? A fullness, a perfection of. And so the seven spirits is the fullness of the spirit, a perfection of the one Holy Spirit. So that's seven is used, especially in any uh, prophetic li- uh, literature in the Bible. So something like Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation. Uh, seven is going to be used to represent perfection. And so 42 months, three and a half years is half of that. It's a broken seven. And so it's a number representing judgment, representing troubled times, uh, that kind of thing. So that's what the 42 months is. There's like 1260 something days is another reference to it. Same reference, all talking about this three and a half years, which is uh, antithetical to the seven. The three and a half antithetical to the seven. So this is going to be a time of of judgment, a time of difficulty. And John is giving a different perspective on the same event, right? We talked about that. We've kind of just had like a a perspective shift on the same event. We're kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. Same judgment, same on the same people uh, from a different angle uh, as we see the beast rise up out of the sea. Nero was a serious persecutor of the church of Christ throughout this season of the church. And coincidentally, not coincidentally, uh, this period was actually 42 months. 
primarily, this is prophetic li- literature, so I feel confident to say that primarily it's a prophetic number, although that was Nero's uh, time of persecution. It was from uh, early or uh, late 64 AD to early 68 AD. 42 months elapsed, and though this mouth, we read that the mouth was given to him by the dragon, right, to speak these blasphemies against the persecuted saints, those who dwell in heaven against God, taking upon a divine name themselves, and blaspheming the tabernacle, though that was all given to them by the dragon, the ability to persecute the saints and the time for which they get to do so, the 42 months, that was given by Jehovah. God sets the bounds to the power of the wicked, and he sets the bounds to the timing of all of it. Satan is the prince of the kingdoms of the earth, right? We read that all peoples and nations in the world not submitted to Christ will worship him, right? Everyone in the, everyone in the world is worshiping him, except one group, the group with their name in the book of life. It's the only group not worshiping Satan. So how long are we going to have to go out to Planned Parenthood on Saturday mornings instead of playing basketball? How long are we going to have to watch moms walk in there, dads walk in there, kill their kids, walk out, flip us off, go about their days? You know, how long are covetousness and homosexuality going to be praised in our land? How long are we going to have, you know, policy after policy passed that just raises the bar of how much we get to rejoice in covetousness as a nation, celebrate homosexuality? How long will wicked men continue to exert sinful authority over wives and children physically abusing them? How long will men claim to speak for God and abuse those under their care sexually? How long will false religions continue to speak as if they speak truth and lead many to hell? Well, the answer is always not one day longer than God's determined. Not one day longer. For Nero, it was 42 months. When that 42 months is up, he's done. He might be Satan's pawn, but Satan is God's pawn. God is in complete control. He governs all things in accordance with his perfect will. Worshiping the dragon will be the law of all them, all they that do not have their names written in the book of life. And I want to read that verse again because it's really cool uh, just how it's worded. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, that's the dragon, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus owns this book. This is the book of the Lamb, which is really cool. Jesus has has earned uh, this book. He's purchased it with his own blood. And it contains uh, the book of life, which is the book of all the names uh, for which he died, all the names for which he rose again. If your name's in that book, right? If you have faith in Christ, your name is in that book. And it's been there, like we saw in 17, from the foundation of the world. God does not call his people here, interestingly, uh, to take up arms against their persecutors. He instead tells them to exhibit the faith and patience of the saints. That's what God calls them to. He says, here is the, the faith and patience of the saints. Instead of taking up arms, he wants them to walk in holiness, to preach the gospel, and to trust God in his perfect timing. Right? Those who imprison you are going to reap imprisonment. And those who slay you will, will receive the same. Those who kill you by the sword are going to die by the sword. Right? That was Nero's lot. He slaughtered many Christians and then fell on his own sword, was basically forced to commit suicide. The major difference is that these Christians were suffering for Christ at the hands of wicked men, while their persecutors persecuted Christ. Right? That's what we learned in Acts two weeks ago. 
If you persecute Christ's people, you might as well have persecuted the Lord of glory himself. So what these evildoers would reap would be from the hand of Almighty God. So Nero falling on his sword, that wasn't like the end of it. It wasn't like that was like justice served. And he killed thousands of Christians in horrific ways, sinning against the Holy God. Falling on his sword was the first painful act in a life of pain and misery and conscious torment in hell forever. That's what, that's what it means to leave. I mean, when we're leaving vengeance to God, it's not like he's just going to strike them down and then it's over. He's going to pour out wrath on them for eternity. They're, they will get theirs. We don't need to worry about that. I'm going to look at a few verses here in, uh, in Hebrews and Romans just to tie in this, this last phrase. He, uh, John admonishes us, here is the patience and faith of the saints. So patience and faith is what uh, you know, we're called to in the midst of persecution. Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Paul encourages here the Hebrew Christians. Paul's the author of Hebrews, in case you didn't know. Um, Paul encourages the Hebrew Christians with the same message. Don't despair and don't be lazy. Have faith, have patience. Hebrews 11.1, 1. now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And Romans 8.24 and 25, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for what, man, what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. Faith in God produces an assurance of hope and should drive us toward patient and joyful obedience and endurance. And if you want to turn with me, we're going to read all of Hebrews 11. No Christian ever, and no faithful Jew who was a, a true uh, worshiper of the true God type of Jew, not a, a, a false Jew, not an unbelieving Jew, uh, no faithful uh, son or daughter of God has ever done anything worth anything but by faith. All of it by faith. If any of you are going to do anything for God, it's going to be by faith. It's not going to be your own works. It's going to be by faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned of things of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by, wit, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked 
for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah received, uh, herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. All, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he had received, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, uh, dying blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Pleasures of sin are always only for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch, should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians saying to do were drowned by faith the walls of Jericho fell down and they were compassed about seven days by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace and what shall shall I more say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Faith means you get to fight aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us. Some better thing for us. That they may without that they without us should be made perfect. It's Hebrews eleven. The victory of God's people on the earth has always been through faith. Anything we're going to do that's of any value will be through faith. Not only are we called to do the same, but as our our text ended in Hebrews 11, we're actually uh, to do the same with more revelation, clearer revelation. We've seen the one prophesied of. Though we're in the same covenant of grace, we've seen the one crucified, nailed to a tree, risen from the dead. We have a more sure hope, a clearer foundation. Our sins nailed it, his tree, and our life in his resurrection life. So how do we kill lust in our hearts? How do we conquer bitterness, anger? How do we live in the truth and not walk as liars? How do we overcome persecutions and sufferings at the hands of our enemies? All by faith. We look to Jesus. He's our sin bearer. He's our death conqueror. We look to him. We trust him. And in doing so, we'll be formed into his image by his spirit from glory to glory. Trusting Jesus means taking a hold of his promises. And it means trusting that his promises are the best thing. Right? If we're going to trust God and be formed into the image of Christ, that's a, that's a joyful exercise. We're going to grow in joy because uh, God's law is a lamp to our feet. His promises are true and they're better than whatever you think is good. If you think something's good and it disagrees with God's word, you're wrong. And God's not calling you to something that's going to require you to begrudgingly follow him for all your days. Heaven's going to have no begrudgingness. We'll be walking in the law of the Lord. It'll be perfect and we'll love it because it's the best. So take hold of the promises of God through faith and through patience. Patience because we know God's timing is perfect. And we need not doubt him. His promises are perfect. There's nothing greater to hope in. So no self-pity. Like Paul said to the Hebrews, no sloth, no laziness faith and patience let's pray father thank you for your word to us tonight we thank you for uh, the truth that you have struck the death blow to the dragon we thank you that uh, sin and death has been conquered for us by your son we pray that you would by your spirit increase our faith increase our patience help us to trust you Uh, Help us to be in your word enough to be hearing your promises regularly. Help us to make it a regular part of our prayer life. A life of faith apart from prayer is just simply not a life of faith. Um, Help us to be prayerful men, prayerful women, prayerful prayerful families, uh, casting our desires, our worries upon you, knowing that you care for us, uh, conforming our will to your perfect will, Uh, all of our days. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to sing. Still on the Clear Note Songbook website. The Son of God goes forth to war. Did you want me to stop and start this recording? Is it it, uh, screen on? Yeah. Yeah, stop and then start. Oh, 
cup of Cross below.